Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Data. It's what many people refer to as the new oil. It's supposed to provide the unbiased insights companies need to make key decisions. But extracting those insights is easier said than done. And that's what today's guest, Chris McCooch, aims to change. Chris is the founder of Data Chris, a consultancy that interprets and uses data to help companies retain and acquire new customers. Originally from Poland, Chris's family immigrated to Canada and settled in Toronto when he was just two years old. He caught the video game bug early on when he received a Sega Genesis and has been a lifelong gamer ever since. He spent a year studying geography at Carleton University before pivoting to advertising and marketing at Sheridan College. His first break in the media industry came at Mindshare, where he was on the team handling Walmart's media buying and planning. He moved deeper into the retail world, taking a data analyst role at EB Games. From there, Chris made the jump to the Omnicom Media Group, taking on a series of data science roles at PhD and Red Magnet. He's making all that experience available through his own consultancy. Datacris is a consultancy company that's focused on using data science to help companies acquire new customers and retain existing ones. So with new data science being so cryptic and new, I sought out to speak a common language for companies amongst their data and strategy teams. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Where are you from? I was actually born outside of Canada in a small city in Poland called Kielce. Uh, and this was just shortly after an era of communism, so life was actually quite confusing for a lot at that point. Uh, so the country's future was really questionable, and uh, ultimately, this is what pushed my parents to take on one of the biggest risks of their life and move to a country where we didn't even speak the language. Didn't speak the language. Did they have any family already over here, or were they just coming in cold? Uh, absolutely no family whatsoever, and uh, it was quite the bold move, if I do say so myself. How old were you when uh, the family left Poland? I would have been probably around two years old at the time. Uh, so it was actually quite funny uh, living here where I was learning both uh, English and Polish simultaneously. And when your family landed in Canada, where did they immigrate to? So naturally, we uh, came here to Toronto. And uh, one of the first places that we went to immediately was uh, Roncesvalles. Uh, which, of course, is the uh, Eastern European community here in Toronto. There's a strong uh, Polish community there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so we got a super dingy basement apartment, uh, you know, didn't know the language. And uh, to make things a little bit more interesting, my, deci- my dad decided that a total of $50 in his pocket would be enough to get life started here. Um, and it turns out it was he was totally right about that in the end. Uh, but he has always had the skill to rub $2 together and uh, make a third, no matter what the circumstances. And you grew up in Toronto, but the family still moved around, though. That basement apartment that your family first settled into, that was only temporary. That's right. That's right. And uh, the tenacity that my parents had to keep pushing forward, uh, I think, is what caused us to move around a fair bit. Uh, thankfully for us, it was always to move to a better place. And so... Uh, We had traveled a little bit around Toronto and uh, ended up living in Mississauga, uh, but not without moving around probably about four or five times in Mississauga as well. So uh, we've been moving around a fair bit my entire life. This is my 38th episode, and I've been asking this question over and over again. What were the interests and hobbies of my guests? You're the first person to come back 
and reply with video games, specifically your Sega Genesis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you love about it? Yeah, so uh, as a kid, uh, you know, even though we didn't really have much, uh, I do remember my parents uh, scrapping together some cash to pick me up as Sega Genesis. And uh, I probably would have been four or five years old at the time. Uh, but for whatever reason, I think I noticed really early on in my life that uh, I had the ability to do some pretty tedious tasks over and over and over again. Uh, but then after that hundredth attempt, I've, I'd finally get it. Uh, I fell in love with the problem solving uh, as a kid. And I think that this is honestly what's influenced my career thus far. Uh, so I guess you could say that I'm a lifelong gamer. I also had a Sega Genesis growing up. What was your favorite game? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, probably Sonic the Hedgehog as a classic. Uh, but there was a couple other games that were probably uh, inappropriate for a five-year-old to be playing like Rambo. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> for me, I would have said Mortal Kombat 1 or 2. Well, that's a good pick as well. Did you have any influences growing up outside of, say, Sonic the Hedgehog? Anyone you looked up to? I watched a total of maybe, I don't know, five basketball games in my life. Uh, and prior to the age of 10, I had only probably seen one or two on TV. Uh, but one of my major influencers uh, at the time was actually Michael Jordan. So you may wonder where that comes from. Uh, and the reasoning is because I watched uh, Space Jam probably about 300 times as a kid. Uh, and for a really long time, I went on believing that there were uh, gateways in every golf course into the Looney Tunes world. Well, if you're young enough, you think cartoons are real. You see them interacting with real people. So I don't blame you. That was a good movie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What was your first ever job? So I've got one that's on the record and one that's off the record in a way. Well, give us both. Uh, so off the record, uh, it was working with my dad. So uh, he basically started his own construction business. Uh, so I managed to get a couple of jobs here and there throughout the summer, uh, working with him, just sweeping floors and stuff like that. But I remember trying to scrape up some money to uh, buy some new games. Or I remember, I think I was into paintballing at that time, actually. Uh, so that was the informal. But Formally was uh, getting a job at Winners when I turned 15 or 16. And uh, both me and my best friend from high school at the time uh, got hired on. And, uh, you know, we, we still laugh about it to this day that they thought two teenage boys uh, folding bras together was a good idea. Hey, I mean, it's work. Uh, sticking with retail for a second. I had a chance to work retail as well, sold furniture and appliances when I was at Sears. What did you learn about yourself or at least about customer service from working in retail? Yeah, you know what? I think the really tricky part about that was was that you'd learn how to bite your tongue. Yes, uh, which patience. Was, I agree completely. Patience is exactly what it is. And uh, I had realized really early on that, you know, being hot-headed and uh, being outspoken uh, wasn't really a positive trait in a retail environment. So, I mean, idealism when it comes to part-time jobs altogether don't go hand in hand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that overall, though, the patience is definitely a good point to make there. Uh, and I definitely feel like that has stuck with me to some extent uh, now, even in my career. After you finished high school, you decided to pack a bag and go to Ottawa, specifically at Carleton University. What did you study there? Yeah, so that was uh, an interesting time frame in my life. And uh, one that was a little bit confusing, we'll say. Uh, I had actually looked up to my high school geography teacher, and uh, he was a really interesting human being. He had so many different layers to him uh, and a really interesting past where he had worked as a rail war, railroad worker uh, and, and had owned a couple different stores. Uh, 
And so to see that kind of transformation of a person and, and uh, progression to go from that to a teacher, uh, you know, I felt like there was maybe something more to it. And so I decided to jump into geography myself. Uh, of course, I loved I loved urban geography as well and uh, how people were manifesting different cities and, and how life was going about uh, with this full design. So I feel like that's what were the most alluring parts to me for sure. But you had a bit of a wake up call at Carleton and what you were studying. You were there for what, one or two years before you kind of had a gut check of what what you wanted to do with your future and then made a change. What happened there or where was that awakening? Yeah, so I think uh, what ended up happening for me was uh, I went up to one of my professors and, uh, you know, I had a couple of my classmates talking about what they would be doing after school, uh, you know, once they had graduated. And uh, it seemed like the general consensus was that there wasn't really much to do, it seemed, uh, at least not without doing additional studies, like taking a master's in urban geography or some sort of post-grad programs. Uh, and at the time, this had freaked me out a little bit. Um, because I was looking to finally start my career and, and start making an impact. And the thought of having to do additional schooling somewhat scared me. And so after talking with some professors, uh, it seemed like that that was the way that it was going to go, that the uh, intuition that a lot of my classmates had were, were correct. Uh, and so I decided that maybe it would be time for a pivot. And so at the same time, uh, this was early days of YouTube uh, when it first actually came out. Uh, I saw a lot of people making videos about gaming. And so I decided, listen, I've been gaming majority of my life. Uh, how hard could it be? And so I had produced some videos and actually got about 2.2 million views across 10 videos or so. That is uh, huge for just 10 videos, especially when you consider that you had, what, no paid advertising behind it. You were just someone in your room making videos. That's right, 100% organic. And uh, it was quite interesting because... The part that I would really obsess over were how the algorithm would work. Uh, and honestly, I would spend probably a couple hours every single day just trying out different things, different concepts, uh, and trying to SEO the videos, which, you know, of course, at the time, I didn't know that was what SEO was, uh, and seemed to have found something that worked. Uh, but I loved everything about it and uh, wanted to jump into something professionally that would get me into the hot seat with when you uh, say something like this. When you say figure out the algorithm, were you doing things like maybe uploading the same video twice, but changing the copy of the name of the video or changing the thumbnail associated with the video to see if one would get more traction over the other? Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot associated with uh, some A-B testing. And, uh, you know, once again, it's funny to think about it back now uh, as to what exactly I was doing. And, and it's some practices that are actually common in different agencies, you know, things like A-B testing and SEO and all these well, that's, different concepts. That's very common, A-B testing. Exactly. But at, at the time, I had no idea that, that this is what uh, marketing and advertising was about. So uh, it was kind of funny seeing the transition and all these early uh, approaches that I now commonly use in my day-to-day -day life. You've been making gaming videos up until this point. You're getting into it. You're getting good at it. You're understanding Google's algorithm. You've left Carlton. Why Sheridan and why advertising? I started to realize that there was this entire industry behind uh, YouTube and they were making what seemed a lot of money and uh, advertising <laughs> a, seemed a little be, bit of money, just a little bit. Right. Google, I mean, how much yeah, does Google, a YouTube campaign cost? Right. Well, I mean, Google's not hard up for cash. Exactly. Exactly. And so I figured, you know what, I, I think this might be something I might be interested in. Uh, I love this concept of getting attention. Uh, on YouTube and, and working their algorithm. 
that I wondered if I could possibly do that for brands as well. And so that was the overall thinking behind me transitioning over to advertising at Sheridan. So then what was your first media gig out of Sheridan? Yeah, that was actually a f- kind of a funny story where uh, I had remembered uh, meeting up with somebody named uh, Noel from Mindshare uh, at Sheridan. And so they were doing like a career fair type of thing, uh, you know, trying to hire out fresh students for the different agencies. And uh, I remember Noel had given me his card to send my resume to. Uh, but I didn't look at the card until afterwards and realized that he actually had sent me uh, his boss's card and not his own. And so I was messaging the director um, of, of planning over at Mindshare. And uh, she thought that I was so bold that I found her and, and uh, actually uh, messaged her my resume and everything else that she wanted me to actually come in. Uh, when in reality, it was a total mistake. Did you uh, tell her that or are you just kind of like, yeah, you know what? I, I tracked you down. I found you and I sent you my resume. You did. Did you, you ever know, tell her it was a happy accident? I don't remember if I actually ended up admitting that to her at any point, but uh, it was a happy little accident, we'll say. And uh, overall, it went quite well. They had a very rigorous uh, interview process for me where they sent over a CSV file with a couple hundred thousand rows of data uh, and asked me to present that my findings at their office in 24 hours time. And so I was so flustered and panicked. I was running around everywhere uh, asking some of my props for help. And uh, I remember I was still finishing up the deck to present to them on the go bus ride into Toronto to their office. But literally just after the weekend I had finished school, uh, I was already there working uh, on the Walmart team. Take us a little bit more through your role at Walmart. So it's your first job at a school. And you are thrown into the deep end, we could say, with one of the biggest retail giants in the world. Yeah, that's right. I feel that uh, Walmart was definitely this massive conglomerate company uh, that I was not really well prepared for from the get-go, but uh, quickly jumped into it and started uh, trying to do as much as I could there. And uh, I remember the budgets that were being sent through. You know, These were numbers I had never seen in my life before. Uh, you know, spending a lot a of million, zeros on the end. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Seeing about a million dollars for a campaign was uh, made my head spin a little bit. Um, but I remember for our one of our Christmas campaigns, there was a fair bit there and uh, a budget of a million dollars. And uh, I remember my director telling me, listen, like you need to meet up with a couple of different vendors and, and put something together. And uh, I remember that was one of the craziest, uh, fastest paced uh, periods of my life ever. Uh, where I was meeting with, you know, four or five vendors a day, uh, just trying to create some sort of plan for a million dollars. But it was honestly a great experience and a good way to start off a career. And the next part of your career, this must have been, this must have been the icing on the cake for you. You found a role at EB Games. Was this your dream role at the time? Yeah, so uh, while I was working on Mindshare, I was uh, attending Ryerson University for a uh, post-grad program in big data. And so uh, EB Games for me was somewhat of a way for me to test out this new skill set, uh, which was the primary reason why I had moved on from my previous role. So EB Games, uh, yeah, match made in heaven, right? Uh, I'm a gamer. They have games. Uh, what more could you ask for? And uh, to top it all off, they really did give me a lot of freedom to work on uh, their huge data sets and tinker really as much as I wanted. So the great thing was that I also had some amazing coworkers. Uh, you know, even to this day, I still consider to be really good friends. And of course, it all being related to gaming made the work at least 25% better. So at the time, it was your dream job. 
what made you want to leave EB Games and take on a new role at uh, Omnicon? Now, after working at uh, EB for about two years, uh, I definitely felt like things had maybe run their course for me. So I was looking to progress once more in my career and uh, get a little bit more technical, which was a little bit more of an ongoing trend for me in my career. Uh, you know, I had a lot more questions surrounding why the data that I was procuring wasn't being taken a little bit more seriously. And uh, EB Games, you know, very old business. They've uh, been in business for quite some time. Uh, and I feel like they had their uh, solidified approaches to how they wanted to solve certain problems. Uh, and it wasn't the era for data yet. And so this had eventually pushed me to the Omnicom family. You started off as a manager of analytics and trading. Tell us a little bit about what that entailed. In uh, analytics and trading, uh, I felt like I had a bit more opportunity to get back towards where I had started with uh, Mindshare and uh, get a little bit closer to the fast-pacedness of the agency world. Uh, and so I definitely did appreciate that. The long-term vision at the time was to jump into a new department that PhD had started, however, uh, called Marketing Science. So there wasn't a role on that team immediately available, but there would have been one uh, about a year from that point. Uh, and so that's when I had jumped over to uh, Omnicom head office uh, where they started a new network. But while I was at PhD, I had worked on a multitude of different accounts and different verticals, uh, such as GSK, Porsche, and Scotiabank. Those are three pretty diverse clients. Do you kind of have to reboot your thinking when you go and approach one versus the other? Say, for example, going from GSK to Porsche? Absolutely. Right. All, all very different verticals, uh, you know, uh, GSK being health related, Porsche, automotive and Scotiabank banking, of course. And uh, I feel like with each and single one came different challenges and approaches, uh, even though all of these were B2C in some capacity, uh, the way that they approached consumers were very different. Uh, for instance, where Porsche had this very long-term vision that wasn't very strongly acquisition-focused, uh, but instead, you know, planting a lot of seeds for them to harvest down the line, uh, you know, versus a GSK, which was a little bit more acquisition-focused. It's funny you mentioned that about Porsche because one of my favorite Porsche commercials is the one where the kid gets into the car, he's playing with it, and then he gets out and he says to the sales rep, "See you in, I don't know, fifteen to twenty years." So that definitely is all about planting the seeds of long-term customers. Absolutely. And that was very prevalent in the planning that we did for them as well. And uh, the things that they asked for, it, it was about planting these seeds and having this long-term vision, uh, which really made me admire their uh, marketing team. How did the internal promotion come about to OMG? And this is the promotion, correct me if I'm wrong, that moved you onto the Rogers team. Correct. That's right. Uh, so in the very beginning, uh, when Omnicom had the Rogers account, uh, it had lived under the uh, OMD uh, branding for quite some time. Uh, but eventually Rogers, I think, was looking for something a little bit more full service uh, in a way. And so Omnicom decided that uh, Rogers was quite an important account and uh, decided to create this new agency type of model, um, one where there was an element of data science to, that was going to be implemented uh, so that they would operate not only in the realm of advertising, but also consultancy. And I feel like this is an ongoing trend as well in the industry. So uh, we'll see, I think, a little bit more of this in the near future. But overall, uh, this new agency model was not to live under an existing banner and instead be separated out into a new shop entirely called Red Magnet. 
So for me, this is a perfect opportunity to work on different kinds of projects that were interesting. Uh, and of course, you know, one month later, after I had made the uh, application, I was standing at the Young and Bloor office. Okay, so this is really interesting. So you moved over to Omnicom. You had the opportunity to be part of a new department they were creating. Uh, you worked on clients from GSK to Porsche to Scotiabank and then was brought over to work on the Rogers team when they were giving them a little bit more TLC and creating a separate agency for them all together. You kind of look at that on paper and you think, you know what, there's nowhere to go but up for me at Omnicom. But you did something that a lot of people wouldn't do. You said goodbye to it and that's when you started Datacris. Was that in the works for a while? Like, how did that come about? When did you have that light bulb moment when you said, you know what, I want to go out on my own? So it was definitely a scary jump. And uh, I feel like jumping over to no income all of a sudden uh, is not a choice a lot of people would make voluntarily. Uh, but after seeing my parents run their own business, uh, their own business my entire life, I, I came out of a realization that it was in my blood. And before this point, honestly, I felt like I had countless sleepless nights for quite some time, uh, just wondering if maybe I was making the wrong decision, if I was in the wrong field or, or what the question there was. You know, it was why wasn't I feeling the real satisfaction of my work? So uh, I'll honestly be really thankful to my therapist who offered me uh, an analogy that I'll never forget. But uh, she said something on the lines of, you know, you're sold the concept of a box your entire life. You know, that you get good grades, go to a good school, get a good job. Uh, but simply put, it could be just that you're not designed for the box specifically. And uh, that got me really thinking that that by accepting this choice, you know, means uh, a life that is not necessarily easier, but maybe one that is a little bit more satisfying. You cite your mom as being the biggest person you lent on when putting this all together. What did she help you with? Yeah, my mom is a ferocious businesswoman, uh, so she runs the business along with my dad, and uh, she does everything on the back end, uh, from setting up their incorporation to the taxes, and uh, she's been here all along with me, uh, guiding me through. So I think that that's given me a lot of confidence to be able to jump over, uh, you know, having already seen it for a good majority of my life, and uh, having somebody who has run their own business for, uh, you know, 25 years, uh, AKA my mom, uh, to be there along my side is, uh, really a blessing. I got to imagine for your parents and yourself, probably, probably it didn't set in for you cause you were only two that packing up and leaving Poland for a new country where you didn't even speak the language and you didn't have a job or anything else was probably the scariest thing they had ever done. Does that make entrepreneurship that much easier to tackle or less stressful or scary? I think that there might be something in that for sure. Uh, I think the majority of immigrants that come to this country, you know, have a chip on their shoulder in some way, uh, you know, and I can speak for my parents is that a lot of it stemmed from a place where, you know, they wanted to prove that they can do it. Uh, you know, that that life that they left behind uh, was worth leaving behind for this better one that we have here. And so, you know, making that kind of decision of leaving a country where you have your entire life established, where you have your family, where you have uh, a job potentially, to a country where you have none of that, uh, you know, taking these kinds of risks of entrepreneurship don't seem so bad. Okay, a couple of rapid fire questions for you. The campaign you're most proud of? That's an interesting one. Uh, I would have to say Scotiabank Arena for sure. And uh, I remembered at the time, uh, it was so hyped up and controversial. Uh, some people around Toronto were so diligent about not ever calling it anything but the uh, ACC. And some people who were totally for the change. 
but I remember Google quoting us uh, for Scotiabank saying that it takes probably about 18 months before the name has been totally adopted. And so I think we're about the 18 month mark right now. And I'd say that they've they made a pretty good uh, estimate. See, the creepiest thing for me about and it's not creepy that they changed the name of it, but the creepiest thing for me was someone had pointed out to me on Instagram that they had a post that they had done when it was still called the Air Canada Centre and it was tagged as being there. And then when it was flipped to the Scotiabank Arena, that's new name, their old post that had been taken like a year, year and a half before this was changed quietly to Scotiabank Arena. So that's my whole memory of that flip. That's right. It was very subtle uh, on some perspectives, but then very aggressive in others. Uh, and the entire campaign that we ran basically was a sentiment-based one, uh, which was just to change people's perspective on the actual renaming of the uh, of the arena. And then what happened the next year? The Raptors won the NBA championship, and <laughs> what Scotiabank threw into it totally paid back, God only knows, tenfold. Now, I don't want to say that's a coincidence, but uh, I would call that a pretty good investment if you ask me. <laughs> Perfect timing. Okay, favorite movie? That's another really good question. Uh, I would say Inception. So for me, uh, to go a little bit deeper into that, I, I don't know if that's like a generic answer, but uh, looking at people's psyche as puzzles uh, really changed my perception of how to convey a strong message through storytelling, I think, and uh, something that I still think about quite often to this day. So do you think Leonardo DiCaprio at the end of the movie was still in a dream or was he in reality? Uh, no comment on that question, Victor. <laughs> okay. Your favorite video game of all time? Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like I have different answers for different eras of my life. Uh, but the most recent, I'll probably would have to go with a game called The Last of Us, uh, which was uh, pretty recent, we'll say. Uh, but it had really impacted me profoundly uh, to the point where, you know, I started thinking about having a kid of my own one day. Uh, and I haven't really had that with any other game in my life. Video game you're playing right now. So right now, um, one of Poland's most prized exports is uh, the Witcher series. And so right now I'm playing through the Witcher 3, which, uh, by the way, if you haven't played, definitely worth uh, playing through. You got to let everyone know that this started life as what, a video game first and then a book before it became a Netflix series? Or what was the order? The book first, right? Uh, the Witcher actually is folklore in Poland, uh, really old folklore. And uh, there was the author who had created the book on The Witcher, which then turned into the game and in the Netflix series and, and so on. But there was a Witcher movie actually out in like the 70s or 80s in the Poland. Your favorite book? That would have to be a book called Hitmakers. And so it's an in-depth analysis of why things go viral. Uh, and so I think you'll start to notice a trend about the things I'm interested in and what I talk about. Um, but this book is really interesting uh, in the sense that they go back to certain phenomenons like the Mona Lisa. And the reason why uh, that painting specifically got popular and not any other one at the time. Uh, really fascinating. Your favorite song? Uh, oh, that's, that's a good one. Uh, I would say The Root Sandstorm. It honestly never fails to hype up a party in my experience. That is a song I have not heard in a very long time. But yes, oh, I yep, agree yep. with you. Best advice you've ever received? Yeah, my, my grandma is a contributor to this one. Uh, is that the world belongs to the brave. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would it be? I feel that if I went to go back, uh, I'd probably tell my younger self that there's so many different careers and options out there that you couldn't even dream of right now. Uh, but don't worry that you'll find your place in the world soon enough. 
My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? So naturally, I feel like if I wasn't doing anything related to data science, uh, I think I'd still be in something that's numbers related in some capacity. Uh, so something like mechanical engineering or astrophysics. Chris, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova. 